So welcome to the Keen Yoga podcast for all things yoga and beyond. I'm Adam Keen, your host, and I hope to facilitate in-depth and unique discussions with teachers, scholars, wellness experts, meditators, and chefs, to name but a few. We've carried this podcast on on a weekly basis since the first lockdown of 2021. We don't make any cash out of this, so any donations at keenyoga.com are appreciated. Today's guest is Stephen Cope, best-selling teacher, author, scholar in residence at Cripple Kripalu Yoga and Wellness Centre. Kripalu Yoga and Wellness Centre, the largest centre for the study and practice of yoga in the Western world, in um, Massachusetts. Kripalu hosts almost 50,000 guests a year in its 200-acre grounds. And Massachusetts is in the US, of course. As a psychotherapist, until a sea change in his late 30s, Stephen Cope specialises in the relationship between the Eastern contemplative traditions and the Western psychological ones. He is the author of many fantastic books, among which Yoga and the Quest for Our True Self was a real inspiration for me, actually, in the early years of my yoga journey. The great work of your life, however, is the main topic of our discussion today. Stephen's most recently published book, making the philosophy of the Bhagavad Gita relevant to all of us struggling to find our purpose in life, our meaning in life. A fantastic, practical and thoughtful conversation was had together today about the meaning of Dharma in the modern world and how we might go about finding and even recognising our meaning in life. Yoga Journal named Stephen one of the most influential thinkers, writers and teachers on the current American yoga scene. And this is certainly true in my mind today. An episode not to be missed. If you enjoyed this podcast, don't hesitate to let us know. And equally, please leave us a re- review on iTunes. Welcome, Stephen, to the Game of Yoga podcast. So welcome, Stephen, to the Keynote Yoga podcast. Thanks for joining us today. So glad to do it, Adam. Very glad. Yeah. I never really know how people are going to retort to that question. And some people just leave it silent. So it's always, <laughs> always kind of waiting to see how people... Oh, I, I'm actually glad to be here. Yeah. It's been really, really nice already to have a chat with you beforehand. And um, So uh, Stephen, is a, you've been a resident yoga teacher at the... Kripalu, um, Kripalu uh, Center in, uh, kind of, was it upstate New York? Is that correct? It's actually in Massachusetts. Okay. okay. Yeah. yeah, we don't have, as Brits, a great, necessarily great uh, geographical knowledge of the states. So it's not bad. At least I thought you were on the West Coast for a while, so we're getting closer. <laughs> and you've been a resident teacher in um, Kripalu for many years, I believe. Yeah, for 32 years now. Oh, wow. Right. It's yeah. great. Okay. So you've seen it evolve a lot, and I suppose let's go back to why, how you got there, and um, you know, and uh, uh, let's go back to the start. Why did you get involved in yoga in the first place? What led you to yoga, and how did that evolve to the Krapalu Center? Before we go on to our discussion today, sure. Well, when I was in in graduate school in Boston, I got very involved in Buddhism. So I, I actually came into Buddhism through Chögyam Trungpa Rinpoche, the great crazy wisdom. Mm-hmm. Oh yeah. Who escaped yeah. that as a monk and came? He was t- he was teaching you directly. Um, well, he um, he was the teacher of the sangha I was in. I rarely uh, saw him, right. but he was the guy in the yeah. 
yeah. legendary figure. Yeah, yeah. Legendary. And this is yeah. quite a long time ago, of course. Mm. Of course, he'd escaped Tibet as a monk, and then he 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 came to Oxford. He wrote some brilliant books uh, about Buddhism. Really, the first books that became highly mainstream in America about Buddhism and translated it for the kind of average person. I was completely lit up by the Dharma. I was in graduate school. I I ran into meditation. I started sitting intensively. And it's almost like an argument for me for past lives. Like I, I seemed to recognize the Dharma when I first heard it. I mm. recognized its brilliance and something caught me profoundly. So I became a, a very impassioned meditator in my 20s. And then, it's so, so constantly we hear this fact that people almost feel like they just somehow came into something with no understanding of where it came from, you know. And then the last person I, God, I can't even remember the last podcast I did. I do so many, but I mean, I remember the hearing of the very last person that same feeling that just they'd always felt that they were attracted to meditating. It just came so naturally. And I have to tell you before I go with your story, the uh, Chogam Trimpa and Akon Rinpoche. Now, Akon Rinpoche, they, they uh, formed Sammy Ling in Scotland. Now, oh, they, they, yeah, yeah, they, they were, I think they, they escaped together and they, you know, they were kind of companions over the mountains. And, uh, and then they went on to form a place um, near me in Essex uh, called Marpa House. And that's a famous, uh, yeah, yeah. Well, that, I mean, Essex is not the place you, you put Buddhism, right? And my upbringing wasn't necessarily particularly Buddhist to put it you know lightly but that happened to be 15 minutes away on the bike as a kid so that was my introduction of facts and i have to say it's because you brought it up is that to to you know to cycle up there i just uh, no one else is going there no kids were there but as a 16 year old i would leave my friends you know pub or whatever then cycle up there and and stay for for weekends and stuff i was just attracted to it so sorry there you go that's exactly a a bizarre yeah just a bizarre kind of coming home that just had no reason to be there in ethics well it's almost it's almost a sense of identity of recognition like for me there was something i recognized in the genius of the buddhist view um it's it's its rationality, almost its, its empiricism, it, it was so practical. And it was so beautiful. I, it was like I recognized it. Mm. So I started meditating, and I, I think because I'm a classical pianist, I, I already had a very concentrated mind. So I got, I got the concentration aspect of meditation right away, and I was, I was in with both feet. And then in my 30s, a buddy of mine introduced me to yoga, and he said, look, in the classical scriptures, um, yoga is considered a, a preparation for meditation, right? So it calms the body and mind. It prepares you to sit. Um, in the eight limbs of yoga, asana, you know, really means posture and sitting posture for meditation. So I thought, well, anything that improves my meditation. Mm. So I, I, I dove into yoga, and then I absolutely adored yoga from the okay. first. Right. And I, I suppose I just assumed you'd always been a, a prof- let's say, professional yoga teacher, you know, but what was your background? What were you doing for work then? Like, was it music? I, I knew that from your books that you were, you know, yeah. I didn't realize right, that you were. No, I'm a psychologist. I'm a clinical oh. psychologist. Yeah. And so until I was 40, I had a, a psychoanalytic psychotherapy practice in Boston. I, I went to Boston to Amherst College and Boston College and BU and 
I studied in the in one of the analytic institutes, and um, uh, and so I had a deep psychotherapy practice. Right. And I was fascinated by the relationship between the Eastern contemplative traditions view of the self and the Western psychological traditions. So I got very interested in that. And, and about, about that time, Mark Epstein was writing his brain. Mm, excellent. Yeah. Um, yeah. Uh, Thoughts Without a Thinker was a pivotal book for me. And so I became very fascinated with the relationship between the Eastern contemplative traditions and Western psychology. In my late 30s, I, I ended a 15-year relationship, which was a which was a really rough time for me. And I decided to take a, a year sabbatical from my psychotherapy practice in Boston. And um, Kripala was the closest kind of well-established monastic setting that I could go into. And back in those days, this was 32 years ago, we had a, 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 we had a, a real ashram situation there. So we had all of the components of the ashram, you know, the chanting and the prayer and the selfless service. And um, there were 350 of us living then at Kripalu as uh, as karma yogis offering right. our time. And 350, that's huge. 350. Yeah. We, we, that's bought, like, yeah, yeah. It's a reasonable size monastery. Yeah. No, we bought yeah. a huge Jesuit novitiate. So the biggest Jesuit novitiate in America um, was built in the 50s and they expected an influx of baby Jesuits. And then in the 60s, uh, nobody wanted to be Jesuits anymore. So we bought this monastery, essentially, and we filled it up with aspiring yogis. And for until about 1994, so that would have been, well, for me, that was only six or seven years. So were you a founder or were you a kind of co-founder? Do you, do you, do I, I wasn't. I was, a, I, I was kind of a founder, one of the people who founded the second iteration of Kripalu. So Kripalu mm-hmm. had the inevitable guru scandal. So we oh, really? Very, no, I didn't know that. Right. Yeah, we had a very famous guru from uh, India. Okay. He founded us in Pennsylvania, right. and then we bought this monastery. And then it was, it was discovered that he was, of course, playing around with disciples. He was being inappropriate in a number yeah. of ways. Yes. So we, we asked him to resign. He left. And at that point, we reinvented ourselves into a 501c3 educational organization. That was in 1994 and 95. And I stayed on at that point, and I became kind of a pillar of the place going forward, which was great for me because I got to help develop all of our programming and our our yoga programming and Mm. philosophy programming. And so I... And then I started writing books, and I'm just finishing my sixth book. Um, I know, and I think was it your first book, "The Quest for the True Self"? It was yoga. That was yoga. fantastic. I mean, that's that's how I first. I mean, and, and I'm thinking this must have been early on in my own yoga journey, maybe 20 years back almost. And I think that oh, yeah. book. Yeah. And it, I, as I mean, I, I was going to go back and read that as well, but I ended up just yeah. more reading your new book, and I don't have so much time. Um, 
But I remember, as I remember it, it was quite psychological in its kind of attempt to weave two things together, right? To look at yoga right. from a, len- a lens that was a little bit more Western yeah, in terms of, you know. Right. That's yeah. what I was doing back in those days. Yeah, I loved I it. Yeah. Merging the two things. So, yeah. anyway, I've had, I, I'm now Scholar Emeritus at Kripalu, and mm. um, I've just had a fabulous career and time there. Uh, Doing yoga, practicing meditation, teaching, writing, exploring, and and now I would say my my dharma is is diving deeply into the great treatises uh, of yoga and translating those for the mainstream practitioner. Mm-hmm. Quite frankly, yoga the the yoga traditions, at least in America, are are pretty. Um, non-intellectual right so you don't have a lot of people here in the states reading the gita in sanskrit and so it, it requires translation into well, what what does this mean for me what does it mean for my life how can i use it yeah we're, we're very practically practical minded over here and um yes. so the, the book that you and i'll probably talk about the great work of your life was an attempt to bring the genius of the Bhagavad Gita back into the mainstream so people could could use it. Um, and yeah. Yeah. I think that's just very relevant because I mean I mean I'm kind of aware of a lot of scholarly work around and you know you know looking at the texts and the you know where they come from and you know the interpolations, et cetera, et cetera. But how does that generally you know, kind of grab the individual who just wants to know, like, you know, how they can appease their own suffering or find their own purpose, you know? And uh, so, yeah, I mean, I think it's a very necessary place for, for I mean, your recent book is fantastic. And um, I suppose, yeah, I was going to ask you more about your yoga. I mean, do you want to say anything more about your, you know, your thoughts about yoga and meditation? It seems that you're more invested in the meditation and the yoga is a is a kind of a vehicle in the kind of Patanjalian way for stability within the meditation. Would that be? Uh, yeah. Relevant? So no. I, um, I was, my introduction to yoga, you'll find this strange, was actually through Bikram. So I, I spent the winters in Key West. And yeah, it's kind of, kind of strange, yeah. Victor's yeah. first teacher, the one that he had authorized, was in Key West, Ronnie. And so for years, I was in deep Bikram training. Now we're talking about the 1980s, like the mid-80s or even the earlier 80s. And, um, and then when I came to Kripalu, I discovered a much more mindful kind of practice. So Kripalu's very mindful practice really syncs up with my interest in meditation yeah. uh, more than, of course, Bikram does. But I, I love the, the more physical uh, kick-ass yoga as well. I do. <laughs> I do. Yes. Well, it doesn't seem to go, you know, I wouldn't say Bikram is necessarily my, like a mindful kind of yoga, is it? So probably you wouldn't put Bikram and the Bhagavad Gita immediately together. No, you would no. not. No, no, no. Um, okay, let's let's make a, a start. And then, you know, the, the great work of, of your life, which is a book we particularly want to talk about, is a book on finding your dharma, right? Um, and looking at the Bhagavad Gita, which is a story about someone who's struggling with their dharma uh, and in a quandary. Uh, and it's a medieval book. It's a very old book. And, and what Stephen has done is really bring this to light with some, some relevant and current examples of his own life 
Um, so I suppose I might surprise you first of all, Stephen, to asking you a little bit more about your finding of your dharma, because I was interested. And what often grabs me about people's books, and people always tell me to write more specifically and personally about myself as well, and I always resist. But what grabs me about other people's books often is that very fact that your brother having this uh, pension for racing, you know, for, for making racing cars, right? And, and you always carrying the, the, the big piano every place you moved. You, know, you had to carry this piano around with you because you're a classical musician. I mean, how does... Can you, do you want to talk about the little bit the finding your dharma in life? Because it does seem like you've had such a strong calling for this. You've been involved in the centre, which is no easy. I mean, I've been involved in these kind of centres and they're no easy undertaking, you know, like um, one thinks that you, you know, oh, so, you know, you're made there, you know, but it's, uh, you know, living in a community with, with many bosses, you know, or many, it, you know, it's not, a, you know, it's not an easy thing whatsoever. So, you, you know, you've picked a very specific dharma there. And uh, yeah, and it's, I suppose you could say it's been, it's been quite strong, really. I mean, up to a certain age, you're in the psychoanalytic field, but you really have carved a, you know, one, one line in the sand for many years, really, um, after starting from a very different place. Yeah. You know, I'm, it's very counterintuitive for me because I was brought up in a very high wasp family, right? Uh, a very patrician American family, if you will. And we had very clear ideas about who we should be in the world, the kinds of jobs we should have, right. how we should look. And it just so happened that I didn't fit into any of those categories. Uh, first of all, I was gay. That really did not fit. Mm. Um, I was interested in, in music and the arts. That also didn't fit, even though I was a pretty good pianist. Um, <clears throat> I never got any support from my family. I, I tell the story of Jane Goodall in this book, and Jane Goodall is an example of someone who, whose dharma, whose calling was seen by her parents, her mother particularly, at a very young age. And so you get to see the story of someone whose, whose dharma was appreciated, mirrored back, supported. And of course, we can watch as Jane Goodall goes from the young girl watching the hen drop the egg all day yeah. working with Lewis Leakey and so forth. Yeah, and Jane Gordon was the uh, the lady who did the. Uh, was it orang? Was it was it orang attack? What was it? Orang- no, it was chimpanzees. Gorillas. Was it yeah. Ch- Ch- gorillas and chimpanzees? Yeah. And didn't she end up? I mean, did she end up getting killed by one of them in the end? Is that true? That, that's the gorilla. That's that's gorillas in the mist. That's the other great. Um, scientist whose name I'm blocking on. Right, 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 right. right. Okay, I'm confused too, but we, I mean, you know, Jane Gould was English, wasn't she? And, and you know, yes, we know, yeah, but just to confirm to our audience who she was. And yes, I mean, it's an unusual experience to have our Dharma mirrored back to us. Um, and I just think, I mean, going back to a few podcasts ago, and you might be interested in a guy, um, David Roche, who um, also grew up in the, in the North Carolina or South Carolina, I get the views, a gay in the 1950, 1950s. Um, was interested in movement and dance you know his family or his stepfather made him join a um a, a military school oh. <laughs> at, which, at which point he the, the the favorite thing in the school he liked the marching he liked the marching band and the twirling and the dancing and the theatrics of that you know but that didn't really cut it so you know yeah it was a hilarious podcast and you know and, and very worth listen for someone whose dharma was completely out of kilter with the time and place he found himself in like you and similarly for me i mean i was from essex you know it's a you're more of a working class area i suppose 
very unspiritual in any aspect. And suddenly we have this Buddhist center up the road, bizarrely, 15 minutes away. And, you know, and, and no, and no one, t- I can't even remember how I found out about it, but there's no one, you know, young person going there. And I just, I just got into it. So it's weird, isn't it? Yeah. Well, it, 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 we know somehow deep in our souls, what we're, if, if I can use that word, what's calling to us. So, for example, when I was an undergraduate, I went to an all-male, I went to Amherst College, which is a very elite all-male school in Massachusetts. And there's a sister school, Smith College, uh, which had a big ballet program. And I was really into ballet and I, I started learning it and practicing it. I was very good at it. And so my very first career was in dance, which mortified my family. I was supposed to be an international lawyer and make lots of money. And I'm I'm dancing in Minneapolis. <laughs> it was just so freaky for my family. Yeah. So um I really had to stick to my guns early on. And um and so latterly did they support you? Um marginally with with kind of bated breath. They were they were sure that I would eventually find the right path, but of course I never did. I, I, I've always been way more on the margins than kind of the rest of my family. But to me, that's been great because it's allowed me a, a lot of freedom of choice. And um, it allowed me to take a year off from my practice, my psychotherapy practice in Boston and, and move to this ashram and try it out because I, at that point, I had been doing psychoanalytic psychotherapy for 10 years. I was tired of it. I was burned out. I was tired of listening to people's, you know, neurotic problems. Mm. And I could barely stand to go to the office. And I knew that there was something else calling me. I was only, I was only 38, 39 then. So I, I dove into my meditation practice to try to listen to what's calling me. and. I just kept getting this voice that said, take a year off, go and practice your meditation, go and practice your yoga. And so mm. I took that year off. And of course, I never came back. I, I ended up becoming very involved in the development of Kripalu and um, it's several iterations now. Um, but there, there is a point where, as you well know, Adam, where you have to take a leap, you have to take a risk. And there are no guarantees when you jump off the cliff from your practice inside your well-established practice, mm, mm. the whole bit. You take a leap and you dive into an ashram for a year at 40. It's, it's risky. It might not have worked. It did work, however. Um, so, yeah. Yeah. I mean, I think it's easy also to kind of tell Dharma from the story of the, the times it works out, you know? Yes, that's really right. might, you know, <laughs> it might not have worked out. And I also went to, I think the, the big thing is people think I'm probably listening. Well, well, that's great. But maybe, you know, if I just stick and weather it out, maybe if you'd stuck it and weathered it out, you'd come into a new incarnation. You know, I mean, you never know when to kind of, whether you should stick it out or whether you should just change, you know? Um, yeah, that's, that's what I call the discernment phase of, of Dharma. Right. So, in, in the Bhagavad Gita, in, in the book that I've written, I've, I've kind of um, simmered down the, the very complex teachings to, mm. four, to four pillars. So there's the discernment phase. In other words, find out what your dharma is. 
find out exactly, precisely what's calling you. That's what I call the first pillar. And also you were very specific in that, which is the, the thing that struck me is well, it really has to be specific. Like if you, even if you're 5% out, that's not it, which I, it struck, it struck me as kind of interesting. And, yeah. and so I always I, have to find that um, even within the yoga teaching, right? Like I've been teaching for many years, but I've definitely gone off kilter within the teaching in terms of a place of, you know, a way, uh, a relationship with a group and that yeah. hasn't been it that hasn't been it and then i've been kind of two percent difference you know maybe you know, like even for, for example in the last time of the lockdown yeah and and suddenly i felt completely in line with it again in a way that i didn't before yeah. but i was still teaching yoga so i mean it, you know i, I like the fact that you qualify it has to be quite specific it's not just oh you know oh it's a yoga teacher and not a psychotherapist it actually well no Make it as specific as you can, because it makes a huge difference to, you know, the, the small print. You know, I'm so glad you raised that. I, I, I say in the book, aim is everything when it comes to the discernment phase. Um, I tell the story of a priest who knew he was called to the church, mm. was unhappy. And he finally decided, he finally realized that what had really called him to the church was music. And, and he played the organ. and. He realized he was, if, if you'll pardon the, the overlapping meanings here, he, he was in the right church, but not the right pew, right? So mm, mm. He, he realized aim is everything. No, just realizing you want to be in the Catholic church wasn't enough. He wanted to be a musician in the his church music. That mm. And as soon as he made that shift, I knew this guy, his life just came alive, right? So... For the most part, people's struggle with discernment does not require some huge life change. It almost always requires uh, some kind of um, better aim, some kind of more specific aim. So yeah, there, yeah. There's, a, there's a misapprehension about Dharma that it's romantic, and in, in order to find your Dharma, you have to leave your job selling insurance and move to Paris and paint, right? But more likely than not, you're already, you've already mucked around somewhere within the field of your dharma. So what we're talking about now is really aiming it. And precision there is, is everything. Yeah, because I think it's easy to kind of get. When you hear a message like this, and one is inevitably unsatisfied with elements of one's life, and right. you just think, oh, well, I'll just leave everything and become a painter then in, in Provence. Do you know what I mean? Like, and I think that's the easy message to get out of it. It's like, well, you know, we need these massive changes because we're always thinking like that. You know, it's, if it's not a 30-day challenge to something, you know, then, you know, it doesn't, you know, it doesn't grab our attention, right? Yeah. But actually what you're talking about in qualification is that you probably aimed your life in this, you know, to a certain degree that there's other four. I mean, because also, I mean, remember, you know, in the Bhagavad Gita, we're not talking about one individual, are we? Arjuna is part of a collective. And so his life is, you know, his, his life is contextualized by the meaning of many people around him, you know, and right. it's, um, so his meaning only lies in, you know, a small adjustment, really, in terms of his relationship to what he's already doing. Right? There you go. Here's another example. I, I recently met with a group of hedge fund uh, directors down in New York, and there was a certain amount of, oh, I'm really dissatisfied with this career and when we nailed it down, what they were really dissatisfied was the, the lack of conscience in their field. 
especially after the 2008 meltdown, when their ilk were partly responsible for the whole thing melting down. So this group decided to form a, a group to talk about Dharma and to talk not about leaving their chosen career, but how to, how to refine it, how to reform it, so that they were actually doing good in the world. At the same time as they were uh, finding their own personal fulfillment, they were working toward the common good. And this is, a, this is an aspect of the Gita that I think most people overlook. Since we're so focused on personal fulfillment in this culture, but according to Krishna, personal fulfillment and the common good arise together. That is to say, when you really find your dharma, even in the book I give the example of, say your dharma is stamp collecting, okay, which seems to have no relationship to the common good. When you find it, if that's truly your calling, guaranteed it will bring you in the direction of the the, yeah. the universal problems that we're dealing with. Maybe you'll start getting interested in in stamps that evoke the well-being of 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 nature, the natural world, or endangered animals, or something. You see what I'm saying? So yeah, and I don't think we make. I think as humans, we don't make meaning in a vacuum. You know, we need others around, or to use the lines of someone like Stephen Porges, the polyvagal theorist. You know, we yeah. co-regulation is a biological factor, isn't it? It's a, it's a it's the major biological factor that as beings we need to co-regulate. You know, you're you're meaningless if you're just doing something. You know, in a bubble, <laughs> just you know, it's, you know, you have to have some people around you to kind of, you know, contextualize your, your own your own sense of self. I suppose. Um, I ha- I meet. I realize I interrupt you. Go through your your four stages of the Bhagavad Gita, if you would, for us, because I yeah. think that's very important. Because I think oftentimes people see it, they read, oh, they come back to me after I've offered them the book, and they go, oh, "I've read the whole thing." And then, well. Okay. <laughs> you know, yeah, yeah. Well, you know, it's like how to get into the book, you know, and and I think and, and trying to pinpoint four aspects of it is I found it very useful in your book. So please, yeah, it's useful. I think I think so. There are four pillars uh, of the Gita that we can agree on. Number one is is discernment. Now, keep in mind that when when the book was written, probably about three hundred BCE. There was no discernment. You were born into your dharma. Arjuna was born a warrior. He had no choice. However, um, that's that's characteristic of a traditional culture where there's not so much a sense of a personal self, but it's an embedded, a socially embedded self. We have this much bigger sense of of a personal self and subjectivity and Mm. fulfillment and satisfaction. So... Our discernment phase is the biggest part of the wrestling match of Dharma for most people. Like, how do I discern? So that's number one, discernment. Number two is once you've discerned your Dharma, once you know what's really calling you, do it full out. This is called the doctrine of unified action. Bring everything you've got to your Dharma. You know, I I tell the story of Susan B. Anthony, who's a great American um, women's rights activist and and the way if you look at her beautiful life of dharma you see that she slowly slowly focused and focused and focused until she was at the very knife edge of her calling which was she decided was all about women's suffrage and Mm -hmm. um, and so her life kind of became a guided missile of women's suffrage so focus concentration unified action 
Bring everything you've got to it. Don't leave anything on the table. So discernment, unified action. The third pillar is the, is the most difficult one to grasp, which is let go of the outcome, right? Krishna says to Arjuna, it's better to fail at your own dharma than to mm. succeed at the dharma of another. Mm-hmm. So um, bring everything you've got and then let go of the fruits. Why? Because clinging and grasping to outcome actually takes you out of the moment. It takes you out of the, your capacity to actually fulfill the, the task or the skill that, that you're developing. Um, so let go of the outcome is something that I a lot of people struggle with. But once you get it, you realize that uh, it's, it's profoundly freeing. Find your dharma, do it full out, let go of the And then finally... Turn it over to God, or we might say, turn it over to something bigger than yourself. If you mm-hmm. turn it over to something bigger, because if you become the object of your own life, your own dharma, your own seeking, it's too small. It's mm-hmm. not big enough. Mm-hmm. You already talked about co-regulation. Um, it's uh, it's got to be bigger than just you. You know, Freud said, if, if you don't have big meaning and purpose in your life, you end up becoming your own baby and you end up infantilizing yourself and mm. not growing and not pushing. Mm. Mm. So find your dharma, do it full out, let go of the fruits and turn it over to something big. Yeah, Those- I wanted, yeah, I wanted you to elaborate on them because I think it's good to have a way in to read the text and obviously everyone has to grapple with the text themselves because you know it's a personal journey with it right and we kind of the the journey of reading the text and kind of trying to understand it and and, you know kind of and follow Arjuna in in the whole process is is one's own soul soul search really no one can tell you your own dharma can you you don't kind of create their own meaning this is this is what you ought to be doing you you know it is a struggle and I think it's a struggle for everyone Especially yep. nowadays, I mean, it seems, I suppose, reading the, the Gita, the one thing that often kind of makes me laugh is when Krishna just says, well, do your duty. You know, that's do right. your duty, that's obvious. Just you're a warrior, just do your duty. And it's like, well, you know, that's a million dollar question nowadays, isn't it? You know, it's like, well, what is duty? You know, and, and you mentioned the idea of the individual as now, you know, we're much more autonomous than we were then. And so Dharma is seen in much more individualistic terms. But then again, you have this paradox of giving it up to something greater or the idea that it's not really us even doing it. I remember in the book, Susan B. Anthony, in the end, goes into the auditorium and they start clapping, right? And she, she says, what are they clapping for? And, they, and the person says, well, for you. And she says, that's not for me. You know, <laughs> they're clapping for the work, you know, you know some, 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 yeah. Um, but I mean, I think there's still a, a huge struggle here, which I don't know whether you could say any more on between this sense that, oh, you know, we want certain aims, we want them in a very personal way and to do something without any aim at all, you know, just for the sake, you know, Krishna says, act without, without wish for the fruits of the action. It's like, well, doesn't make sense. I mean, how do you, how do you, gen- I mean, you're teaching big courses in Kripalu for the American public, which is maybe not necessarily schooled in yoga i mean how, and you know just doing regular jobs and coming there for you know a bit of yoga you know they're not how do you make sense of this kind of language to them <laughs> it's you really have to dig because first of all adam the, the whole notion of duty is not particularly big in our culture right now so um 
duty almost uh so there of course there are different kinds of duty you know cicero wrote wrote the great essay on duty um and uh there are duties that are imposed on us from without by our culture or our family but the duties that we're talking about in dharma are duties that you feel called called on from within okay so my definition of a duty in that regard is what is it that if you don't do it in this lifetime you will feel a profound sense of self betrayal right so self betrayal mm. there are all kinds mm. of duties people try to foist on me right mm. but there are certain duties that are called for from within i i like to say there are two there are two facets to to finding your dharma one is you you look at what's lighting you up right what's lighting mm. you up life that that's an easy one that's you know that's um Campbell saying follow your bliss uh but the other mm. one is duty and duty is very different duty mm. that, mm. that are not necessarily fun and two are combined so there's there's some aspect of your dharma that lights you up and there are other aspects that are actually duty so for example I've chosen a life of relationship to this big community, a large organization, and it's been fabulous, but there are some aspects of the work that are duty that I don't know, mm. not mm. even that good at, but that I mm. have to do because mm. it's part of the package. And and I wouldn't not do them. For example, Propalo, we have a 50 million dollar a year budget. I'm the most visible Propalo spokesperson. I do a lot of fundraising, which means I end up in rooms with hedge fund guys and and it's not always my favorite thing to do and no I could imagine that. <laughs> I don't I don't like asking for money. But it's a duty and it's called for and it's part of the package and I do it and over the long haul there is a sense of there's some weird sense of beauty about it. It's it's somewhat sacrificial. Right. Yeah. And I mean, that's a huge part of the book as well. That's, yeah. And, and yoga, and, you know, everyone knows tapas, right? You know, in some sense, doing stuff that's hard, yeah. it, you know, just to follow your bliss attitude, which is a kind of baby boomer, you know, kind of, men, I mean, look what mess that's got us into, right? Oh, no. Absolutely. I mean, you have to have both sides of this equation. And the whole idea of a dharma that's all dharmas are partly self sacrificial. Right. I, I tell the story of, of, uh, of uh, Walt Whitman. And mm. Walt Whitman, of course, had just achieved international fame with his, with his book, Leaves of Grass. And Emerson had declared him a genius and he was riding at the top of the world. This was in the 1850s. And then along comes the Civil War and blows up the whole culture. And he, his brother George is, is wounded, so he goes down to a hospital and he discovers a new dharma, which is, here he is, it's the height of his career. He decides, no, my dharma now is to, is to minister, to be a, a missionary to these suffering soldiers. So my dharma now is to take all my poetic skills and write letters to their families for them and read poetry to them. And he, he is, to some extent, immolated by his years in the hospitals of the Civil War, which were difficult, nasty places. 
And yet out of that, what emerges out of that in his later career is this beautiful poetry about the Civil War. He became, he became the bard of America's bard of the Civil War. So when Lincoln is assassinated, he writes mm. the great poem, Oh, Captain, My Captain. Um, it's a mystery how that sacrifice actually bears fruit. And we're not, um, we're not a people or a culture that has wants much to do with self-sacrifice at all. Mm. It's a mystery. It's a part of Dharma. And I, I love the Whitman story because he brought everything he had to that Dharma of, of soldiers missionary. And it was beautiful. If you read what he wrote about his work in the hospitals and the poetry that he wrote later, it's a book called drum taps. It's sublime. And here he was using his poetic genius to grapple with the massive death and destruction of the civil war. And it's a great story to bring to the Bhagavad Gita because the Gita is about a war too. Oh yeah. What about the carnage of war? Is there a just war? Is there Mm. such a thing? So these are all things that you have to look at if you're reading the Gita. What about one of your most personal challenges with your own Dharma? Just a practical note again. Um, I think, honestly, it's been this question of duty. So I love to write. My, I come from a family of writers. My grandfather hmm. was a writer. He wrote mystery stories. He wrote hmm. novels. My mother was a poet. She hmm. produced books of poetry. I come to writing quite naturally, and I love It's true. There's a lot of the stories in the book now. I'm thinking about it. A lot of them are about writers, aren't they? You've yeah. got... Um, it's right. You've got, you got Frost, I think, of you, and Thoreau yeah. and uh, Whitman. Yeah, yeah. And it's fascinating as someone who loves literature as well to see their own trajectories. Yeah, yeah. Yep. So, Sorry. Yeah. Um, so I love my writing world. Here I am in my study, right? My books, my writing, love it. But there's this other side of my dharma, which is teaching. So you probably know in, in the Buddhist tradition, uh, there's a strong call once you've received the Dharma and heard it and understood it to teach it. And I'm a very much an introvert. I don't, I've never loved standing up in front of groups of 150 people and teaching and laying myself bare to that. It's been a real sacrificial calling my whole career. Hmm. And, um, and yet I've done it. I've done it quite a lot. I think I do it well. Um, it's, it's, it's one of those duties. So Mary Oliver has a great poem, uh, A Dream of Trees. Do you know her poem called A Dream? No, 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 no. I don't. It starts out something like this. I had a dream of trees, a dream uh, of, a, you know, a wild, quiet life in the country. And, and the poem goes on to say that, uh, but where life is actually happening for her and for the poet is, is where the people are and where the cities are. And, and so the, the poem ends, uh, you know, whoever made music of a mild day. So the music that she makes in her poetry calls her to the city, to the greatest conflicts of the time. To mm. the difficulties. 
Um, so I, I very much identify with that poem. That's been my conflict too. And usually if, if you have a Dharma, there's some, you know, conflict in there about the parts of it that you love. Mm. You have to do. Does everyone have a Dharma? Yeah. I mean, <laughs> you know, this is where some uh, people would say, I don't have any Dharma in particular. I just do a job and, you know, I get money and, you know, that's that. You know what I mean? Like, you know, <laughs> buy food, you know. It's funny. Um, I, I've published now six books and I never read the reviews online because people just dump all Yeah, good idea. Books. Yeah, I, yeah. I had, but I accidentally read the latest review of my book which is called The Wisdom of Yoga, which is my book on Patanjali's Yoga Sutras. And it's a very good book. And the, the, I only saw the headline of the review. It said, this book is elitist schlock, right? This book is elitist schlock. <laughs> um, and I don't even know what that word means. Must be some Americanism. Yeah, it's an Americanism for yeah. bullshit. Basically. Yeah, right. Okay, yeah, I got the idea. Right. Yeah. Oh, what a shame. Well, and, and the idea don't. is is uh, elitism is now squarely on the outs. Mm, mm. Um, so the idea that, to get back to your point, that everybody has a dharma uh, is seen as an elitist view. Right. Because, uh, oh, oh, yeah, maybe you have time to have a dharma. Right. right? Mm, yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay. Um, the truth is, there's some truth to that. You know, I, I, I want every, I, I do believe that everyone does have a dharma. Yeah, because, yeah, I mean, now we're extrapolating on that point. People are going to come back and say, well, what about the road sweeper? What do you want to see? You know, and we all need, you know, we need people to do all jobs, right? And do, does everyone doing kind of so-called menial functionary tasks have a dharma? Is that their dharma? No, because there, there are so many misconceptions about dharma one of them is that it has to be your work or your job and that's just not true right so I, okay. I have a friend who who works for the city on the on the crews that clean the streets and mow the lawns that's not his dharma his dharma is he's a wonderful uh organic gardener he's in love with that that's what he does with the rest of his time for him and his family it doesn't have to be your job i have mm. a I have a, my sister was a secretary all her life and she raised her kid. Raising her kid was her dharma. And she raised mm. her kid, by the way. Yeah. That's a good qualification to make because I think increasingly we just see our work as our identity, you know? Yeah. And it's not so. Yeah. Um, yeah. And, and there's another one in there, which is that uh, we only have one dharma in life. That's also not true. We, you can have more than one dharma at a time. And also one thing I know is that dharmas can very often come to an end. So uh, I just did a podcast with a guy in Alabama last week, and he was saying he's got this whole crew of 50-something men and women whose careers have petered out and they've dried up. And, and I said, yeah, because dharmas very often end. Mm, that's mm. the call to reinvent yourself. So when when a dharma ends, when a door closes, look for the open door because there there are always doors open. People get you know the great Byron's The Prisoner of Chillin, where you know the the door is open and the prisoner 
won't go out. Mm -hmm. um, you've got to, when I, I'm very interested in these, in these between times when we're completely at sea about our Dharma. Mm -hmm. So I have this experience, Adam, where I get what I call a Dharma assignment. That is, it gets clear to me what book I'm writing next. Okay. So when this book on the, the second book on the Gita came up, oh, okay. That's a Dharma assignment. That's what I'm going to do for the next four years. So I have four years of utter clarity about what I'm doing. And then it's over, which it, I just finished this new book two weeks ago. And now I'm in this in, inner space of, you know, it's, we, we might call it liminal space, right? I'm, I'm done with the last thing, but I'm, I'm limin literally means um, uh, uh, threshold. So I, I, I'm, I'm between Dharma assignments, and it's very interesting. You really have to bear down on your practice in those times. You have to practice, as the Buddha said, like your hair was on fire. Listen. Um, listen for hunches, for intuitions. Notice where the doors in your life are opening. And it may be a surprise. I'll give you one of these. As I'm finishing this book, all of a sudden, this door opened in my life that I never expected, which is that I accidentally became the co-owner of a puppy, right? Now, I was, I, expecting, I was expecting that. Yeah, <laughs> that <laughs> I, how accidentally, which is kind of well, equally as interesting. I, I said to my best buddy, Brian, okay. Brian, you've got to get a dog. He's divorced. He's lonely. Yeah. Get a dog. I have a dog. So he got a dog, and the dog he got is fabulous. I fell in love with the dog. He's not so in love with her, so we're kind of co-raising her. And all of a sudden, out of the blue, I talked about taking left turns. Out of the blue, I'm completely involved in the life of this nine-month-old dog, and I'm totally in love with her. I'm giving up all kinds of other stuff. So I can take her to agility training classes and I've hired a trainer to work with me to train her and I love her to death. Well, so I, I suppose the question that immediately comes up with that idea then is when we talk about Dharma, we're not necessarily talking about the kind of enlightenment kind of Dharma, right? Or are we? Well, I mean, the, you know, Krishna wasn't necessarily kind of advising Arjuna to... He needs to get a puppy now, really. You know, that's what he really needs, you know. But if the puppy does turn out to be your dharma, right. then the puppy will transform you. Right. right? So it could so, be anything. The material circumstances don't so much matter. Right. The, the Dalai Lama calls his dogs uh, Rinpoche, which means teachers. The Dalai Lama is devoted to his dogs. And <laughs> I believe that if you devote yourself to an animal, um, if that's your calling, if that's your calling, the the relationship will transform you in some way, in some good way. And it does newer to the common good because mm. the dog has a soul. Um, anyway, this is brand new for me, and I probably should. <laughs> no, it's, it's really interesting. <laughs> and just Albert, just what, 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 what dogs the Dalai Lama got? Tibetan Mastiffs or something like that? He's got big dogs. I'm not yeah, they're Tibetan, Tibetan Mastiffs, already. Yeah. yeah, they're huge, huge dogs. Yeah, yeah. Right, where were we? Um, finally, then, um, 
how to become less attached to the end, to, you know, to the fruit of the action. I mean, I think you discussed discernment a little bit, which I think is very interesting. And the obvious question that comes to mind, how the hell do I know if, if I am doing my thing and it's just hard, <laughs> you know, it's just like, it is my diamond. It's just hard. Yeah. Or I'm really just like not doing my thing. You know I mean? For example, I mean, I had a silly scenario when I first went to university and I was in the wrong philosophy department, you know, and, and um, I felt, well, it's all, you know, and I went to psych, you know, kind of psychotherapy and the kind of message was, well, it's you, you know, like, you just, you know, it's just about your attitude towards things. And it's like, well, you know, it's, it's about what's inside you. And actually, you know, like, I just changed it. I just changed it. You know, like, I left the university, went to another one, and it was great. You know, night and, night and day, you know. So sometimes it is just literally like, it's not about, you know, suffering through something. Or it's just simply, you want to change that thing, you know. So you, it's hard. It's hard to know. I'm sorry, Adam. Did you go through a, a period of doubt when you were wrestling with that? It was terrible because everything told me I should go, but this was something which was, I suppose, expect. It was never expected in in the, I suppose, my upbringing that I would kind of go to university and not get on there. You know, I don't know. It was a good. It was a good one. The course was good. The, you know, I never failed at anything before. You know, yeah. so to have this experience of that was, um, it was actually. Awful. It was a, a complete yeah. um, pivotal moment. I think, and it was a huge. The, the, the crisis and the doubt involved in that was massive. Yeah, but I can only mm. and mm. doubt is a very good topic to to dig into because whenever some new the arising of doubt in your life, and and the experience of doubt is the experience of being split between mm. and the other. Right. It's it's a that's the that's the definition of doubt. One foot here and one foot here, and you can't move off it. Um, but when a new dharma is arising, almost always it comes on with the with a flavor of doubt, with a, an experience of doubt. And the contemplative traditions, doubt is one of the five hindrances in the in the traditions. It's grasping aversion, um, uh, sloth and torpor. Uh, restlessness and doubt. Okay. Mm, mm. So the the instruction is always work with doubt in the same way that you work with the other hindrances. So with grasping and aversion, what do you do? You feel it, you investigate it, you don't deny it, you don't push it away. And it's the same with doubt. You you open the box of doubt. Well, what's in there? Oh, I have to. Here's a problem that I need to solve. Here's a question that I need more information on. So. Doubt is a very uncomfortable place to be. And you, you need to first acknowledge that you're in doubt, and then you need to work actively with it. Because a lot of people never recover from doubt. A lot of people put their folding chair down in the middle of an intersection and, right. and get up, right? Right, right. Doubt is also really profound because it allows you to, you know, it's, just, it's fertile ground, isn't it? And it's open right. territory and it's, right. it's, you know, it's yoga, really. It's the unfamiliar, it's the unconditioned, you know, and the unknown. And yeah, I mean, my experience of going, you have these really fallow periods and they can be quite dark. Um, and the, yeah, and, and doubt is, yeah, to doubt oneself and to doubt, you know, oneself in context of other human beings is, a, you know, it's a very, very difficult situation to find oneself in. But they've always born the next phase has been incredibly fruitful on the back of that seemingly fallow period, which wasn't really. I mean, 
And I suppose, I mean, just to finally kind of go back to sharing that little story about the yoga teaching, and I found that before the lockdown, I was I was starting to find myself in a certain scenario whereby there were yoga centers all around me in London. And I could no longer almost be able to afford to continue to teach what I taught for many, many years, which was, you know, you know the you know, anyways, whatever it was, it was the yoga we teach, the Ashtanga Yoga. And so I found myself in this really difficult period for, for maybe two years, you know, and a number of other circumstances weren't great and the living situation, blah, blah. Um, and then suddenly, you know, suddenly that, you know, this, this difficult situation, obviously horrendous with the pandemic happened, but, you know, I found the online yoga teaching really really works for me and oh, it, I, I never planned for it and in fact my wife told me you you ought to do it and i said i'm not going to do that you know it won't work online you know it just won't work you know <laughs> and um the, and we had an argument obviously and i then i listened to her because usually she's right and um you know and uh, and i started it and and I've, I've come into a new incarnation of myself after a couple of very uh, dark years really in terms of the yoga teaching and just in a, a mar- something, one, one, a situation one could never, ever Im- have imagined happening in a million years. And, and the secondly, it just, it's such a small sidestep, really. You know, Absolutely. I'm doing whatever, I'm doing the same thing I ever did, but in just a slightly different way. And it works so well for me. And where the other thing wasn't really working anymore, I was doubting the adjustments. I was doubting the, you know, where the Ashtanga Yoga is big on the adjustments and, I was doubting, you know, the, the, the worry about the intimacy now, the worry of the effectiveness of, of physical adjustments, you know, as well as the, you know, the situation with all these yoga centers surrounding everywhere and everyone going to different teachers and, you know, the numbers dwindling because there's so many centers and, you know, and suddenly something happened and it was, it was bizarre. Yeah. You know, the fact you, you very helpfully pointed to how fruitful a period of doubt can be. Mm. And um, I, I really want to underline that because for me, I talked about Dharma assignments. When I'm between assignments, there's a tremendous amount of doubt and, and mystery and not knowing and, and mist like fog. And I'm not sure where I am. And it's, it's actually, if you use it properly, it's, it's incredibly creative. Um, you can like, Learn to, to, to look for the open doors. Where's the open door? Well, you found an open door in teaching online. There it was. Boom. Opened. You went through it. And mm. that's, what, that's what gave you the fruition you're having now. I guess there's the opportunity and then there's the, the ability or, or to recognize it and to take it. Those, right? yeah. that, that requires flexibility and fluidity. And that's... That's something that we know that yoga practice really promotes. And, and it's, it's the capacity to be flexible and fluid. And when I look at all these great lives that I, that I study, and again, I've just written a new book, and they all have this capacity to be flexible and to, and to be fluid and to flow with, with the current of something new that's, that's pulling them. Um, Gandhi's the, the biggest example, uh, but I talked about Robert Frost, right? Robert Frost. Mm. Robert Frost's career was interesting because he had to go through many different phases of taking little leaps off the cliff because he was a poet. He knew he was a poet when he was 18, but poetry was not a vocation then. Mm. It was not in the earliest 20th century. It was not something his family would accept at all. And so 
he had to, in order to get to being a full-fledged poet, he had to do it in little leaps off the cliff, right? So um, a little leap where he taught school for a while, and then he bought a farm for a while, but mm. really a secret way of poet because he wasn't really farming. He was actually yeah. poetry. Yeah, so, yeah, I like that. <laughs> right, I mean, finally, I mean, I think it's worth clarifying or hearing your thoughts on the idea that the Gita could be people read it and they think well I just have to wait around now you know like it's it, it can be read as a kind of paternalist fatalistic kind of passive message right like yeah. you know you don't decide right like because you don't know you know like you can't trust your own emotions right like Arjuna can't really trust his rationale because he's shaking there in the battlefield right like he's having this visceral rather you know um intense experience which clouds his judgment completely right so i mean i think that's meant to be clearly you know kind of inserted there that you know trusting our rational processes which are influenced heavily by not only karma but the physical experiences the emotional body which are circumstantial and you know, often fairly arbitrary is is a risky business to to you know just trust our lucid thinking certainly in the moment and um, so then we get into this kind of determinist rut where we just kind of do anything that's in front of us, right? Rather than be kind of grab the ball by its horns and actually, you know, do stuff, right? And I mean, how, how, how do you approach that question? Um, so uh, I just totally lost trust. Sorry. About Sorry, it's a preamble that was too long. So we have a fatalistic aspect of the, of the Gita, the way it can be taken as a quite determinist tract. And what I'm suggesting is that if you read it carefully, it very much isn't like that at all. It's a very active, uh, very you know, engaged um, uh, message that has been given. Right. Well, the thing is, and, and what's very often overlooked in the Gita is, Krishna does teach Arjuna one practice, just one yeah. practice. He teaches him meditation. Mm. And there's, there's a reason for that, and that's, of course, chapter six. And again, it happens pretty quickly. But, and, and, you know, we're given to think that this whole dialogue happens in one evening. It it's actually happens over eons, right? And he's supposed to be practicing something. What? Meditation. Why? Because meditation systematically deepens your attunement to your body and mind, to your subtle body, to all those, all those koshas, to, you know, to, to subtle mind. Um, and it, it, that's the way to discernment. There is a technique. It's not just like one of the things that turned me off about Christianity, and I, I went through a Christian seminary when I was, before I became more interested in Buddhism is that there's a lot of theology and a lot of rationality, but there's no actual, very little actual practice. What do you do? Well, mm. there's a practice in the Gita. It's meditation. But one also has to realize that that practice um, is, is all, in all meditation traditions, yoga, Buddhism, Jainism, in the Christian meditation tradition, it's always in the context of um, the scriptures or the great treatises in any wisdom, any wisdom tradition has great wisdom treatises that, that will be helpful, like the Bhagavad Gita or Patanjali. Mm. They, they have exemplars, that is to say, you might call them saints or you might call them whatever they are. They're adept practitioners that you, you look to them to understand 
um, to help you understand your life and your, your trajectory and, and your meaning. Um, very often they have revelation. So it's disputed whether the Bhagavad Gita is, is a revealed scripture or hmm, whether it's revelation or, or tradition. Um, and um, so usually we're practicing within uh, a given tradition and a great wisdom tradition that will have tons of resources for us to use not only our intuition and what comes out of our prayer life and our meditation life, but the lives of the saints, the great texts, the treatises, um, the, the teachers, right? So in, in Buddhism, this is called the triple gem, the Buddha, the Dharma, and the Sangha, the community. So we use all of those resources. And as, as because the Gita is in the, is in the form of a great dialogue, we kind of miss some of that. It's taken for granted because everybody reading the Gita back in the day was growing up in the context of a great tradition that had, that had tons of resources. Um, Gandhi, Gandhi said that he, he privileged what he called conscience, which is mind, subtle mind, the still small voice, the inner voice, awake mind, whatever you want to call it. Gandhi said, in difficult times, we must privilege enlightened mind, awake mind, right? And that's definitely cultivated through meditation and yoga practice. Mm. I don't know if that answered your question, but it was a long way around. <laughs> <laughs> well, it didn't exactly. Um, but it was a very relevant point to make that there was a definite practice there in this this theorizing in the Bhagavad Gita, and as you said, it is the clarity of one-pointed thought, you know, of sitting, and, and, it's, you know, and it is, there's no way around it to say that, you know, there is very specific, you know, you find yourself some, some uh, grass, some certain, certain kusha grass, and you sit on it, right, and you're away from other people, like, you know, in isolation, you know. Not sleeping too much, not too little, you know, like you know, eating too much, not too little. You know, you know, it's very specific, yeah. And I think that's often forgotten that, you know, and I do think, you know, it's easy to to kind of um synthesize everything or give kind of easy whitewashing answers. But you know, practice is there for a reason and you know, and it is and in my life it has definitely borne fruit and and I think that a lot of the confusion I was talking to you about has only really started to be able to be born fruitfully. Um, when when there was a stability of a practice underneath that, otherwise there was just a, a storm of confusion that I couldn't really use very very helpfully. It was too much you know, to bear. Yeah, that point is so yeah. important, Adam. When mm. you just said the 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 container that we're given when we um, buy into or enroll in or investigate one of these great traditions, it, it can be yoga. There are many traditions within yoga, of course. You know, there's the um, there's the Raja Yoga tradition and the Hatha Yoga and the Tantra, and the, there are many different traditions. But I always advise people to find the one that really speaks to you and then go deep. It doesn't mean that you um, are eliminating anything else. Gandhi, again, I always go back to Gandhi, was very pluralistic in terms of what he used. Um, but you you do try to go deep into your tradition and find out what's there. What are the the treatises and the um, and and who are the 
exemplars that you want to study. Mm-hmm. Yeah, no, that's another good point. Yeah, yeah, it's good to have some. Uh, yeah, it's a nice way to put it. Exemplars. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Uh, not necessarily gurus anymore. We can call them exemplars. No, that's that's kind of nice. Well, I, you know, I never find it easy to wrap up these things, but we've done an hour, so I'll say thank you very much, Stephen, for your time and for a wonderful conversation today. And um, I hope you enjoyed it as well. I totally enjoyed it. It was completely fun from the beginning. And we had a little informal chat at the beginning, which was great. Yeah. Uh, I will visit you in France one of these days when I'm. I'd love to have you. I'd love to have you. And um, I suppose people can find you on your websites um, and, the, and the new books are, well, the new book I have, the Fully Read, which is coming out shortly. The, um, the previous book, The Great Work of Your Life, is a fantastic book. I've read that myself. And the new one is the Pat- Patanjali. Uh, now, the new one is called The Dharma of Difficult Times. Dharma of Difficult Times. Okay. It, it'll be out in, in um, January. It's on, it's on Amazon right now. If you go to my Amazon page, it's there. But it'll um, be... It'll be having amazing. read a lot of other stuff that he's written, I'm sure it's not complete schlack. Don't worry. Uh, <laughs> 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 All right, Stephen. Thank you very much. And, um, my pleasure. Thank you, Adam.